0: From Trojan's Wire, part of the College Wire Network at USA Today. This is the Trojans Wired Podcast. Here are your hosts, Matt Zemek and Ian Hest.
1: Welcome to the latest episode of Trojans Wire, the in-house production of the website Trojans Wire, part of the College Wire Network. You can listen to this podcast on Google, Spotify, Apple, and the other places where you like to get your podcasts. So I'm Matt Zemek. I'm along with my producer Ian Hest, and uh, we need to follow up on Caleb Williams. And you know, Ian and I had a little discussion last week, right when the news broke, but. Let's now step back and absorb the Caleb Williams news and get an outside perspective from one of our favorite guests. He's back with us, Jack Follman, you can follow him at Jack, F-O-L-L-M-A-N, part of the great team at Sports Pac-12, uh, covering the Pac-12 with you know great depth and breadth and detail. The guys do a great job over there, and Jack Follman's one of our favorites over there at SPAC, Sports Pac-12. So Jack's here to help us. Make sense of Caleb Williams, also Pac-12 recruiting, USC recruiting, and just a, an early sense of the off-season in and throughout Pac-12 football. Jack Fullen, welcome back. welcome back to the Trojans Wired podcast. Yeah, thank you. All right, so Caleb Williams, I mean, <laughs> we'll get into some details, but just, you know, what's your immediate reaction in terms of how this changes the game for USC uh, within the context of the Pac-12?
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's been a uh, you know an earth moving couple of months here for USC in the Pac-12, and to me, Caleb Williams is he, he's not a five star recruit. He's a ten star recruit, and this <clears throat> this is huge for the the Trojans, as you know. They I think everyone kind of forgets how you know bad twenty twenty one went for USC with how great things have been in the offseason Because uh, yeah, they needed to really bolster the roster, the depth chart. And this is the best way to do it. I mean, not only you're getting a guy who I believe was the, the number one quarterback overall in his class, he showed how good he was, the true freshman on top of that. So this is like, so I say it goes beyond a five-star recruit. This is a 10 star recruit. This is a guy uh, who people loved coming out of high school. And he showed that he is a very good college quarterback uh, already at a big time program. Uh, and, you know, it's, College football is getting crazier and crazier, and quarterback specifically. I mean, just in the USC cycle of Slovis to Dart to Williams, uh, how fast that all happened. But this is great, and this is huge for USC. Um, I I it's good and bad for the conference overall. I mean, you know, it's good for. I think it raises the uh, it raises the profile of USC in the conference. You know, nationally, we need some people out here that people outside of the region know, and especially at quarterback. Uh, you know, we've had some guys in the Pac-12 recently at other positions. So I think got some national recognition, but really at the end of the day, college football media, general public, people care about quarterbacks. And this looks like, uh, and all that sure thing, you never know. There's no such thing as sure things as a quarterback or any position stepping in right away and building on what they showed at another program. But I would be pretty surprised, uh, if he's not at least pretty good his first year and, you know, builds from there.
1: Jack, uh, you know, in talking to other, you know, commentators being on other, uh, programs as a guest, um, wh- one interesting things come up over the past week. And that, and that is that, you know, is uh, a quarterback in general, and then more specifically a quarterback of Caleb Williams caliber, is, is, is that kind of player like worth the same as, as like four recruits from at other positions on the field? Like when we, like if we if we were to do like a a college football trading card game, you know, like I'll give you this card in exchange for for those cards. Like, is a Caleb Williams worth like three or four other players? I mean, I don't know if you've worked out a formula in your mind, Jack. I mean, you might not have done that, but like you know, it, the thought just occurred to me that for USC in its very particular position with Jackson Dart. Having gone to Ole Miss, getting Caleb Williams was, you know, valuable on the scale of the same scale of getting a a linebacker, two offensive linemen and a safety. I mean, that's how I think about it, because if if Caleb Williams doesn't come, USC is either scrambling to find another quarterback in the portal or having to deal with, you know, Miller Moss, who hey, great upside. Like there's people inside USC know that he has a bright future. They know that that there's a lot of talent there, but he's not going to be ready for 2022. It's certainly not to the extent that uh, he would enable USC's offense to rock and roll. Whereas Caleb Williams, hey, he already has the familiarity with the Lincoln-Riley offense. So, uh, you know, it just strikes me, Jack, that getting Caleb Williams kind of what you said when he's a 10-star recruit, not a five-star, that getting Caleb Williams is like getting four or five high-profile recruits at the other non-quarterback positions. What's your sense of Caleb Williams' value within that kind of construct?
2: I really think so. Uh, I mean, I don't think college is as intense as the NFL is now, where the NFL is basically just a survival of who has the best quarterbacks uh, if you really want to win. But college is not far behind. I think you you want to look at the teams that you know win national championships and go far in in the college football playoff. I mean, you're going to look at recent quarterbacks that have you know uh, really lit it up, and you're also going to look at you know even just the conference for the the most part. And uh, you know you kind of have that struggle. It's really hard to be really good especially for goals to win a national championship uh, with, you know, a non-star quarterback. I mean, Georgia is not, it's kind of the count the, you know, the, uh, the counter argument to that this year, but that's just because their entire team was so loaded. And if they had a star quarterback, they wouldn't have been like LSU uh, with Joe Burrow, where like they, they're going to they beat everyone by, you know, 25 points because they were that talented and they had a quarterback. Uh, the other part of it too, is, I mean, marketing and, Uh, building your program which is so important in college football I mean people just care about quarterbacks and it's been a big problem with the Pac-12 uh in recent recent years of not only just not having great quarterbacks but just not having quarterbacks that you can build up as stars either and that addition to it you know how USC is going to be able to market Caleb Williams uh you know and be able to build that into the perception of the program and recruiting and the whole, you know, fat, like all the facets that go into that in the college football world is gigantic. And yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, it's more important to me than uh, a lot of guys that you spread out at different positions. I mean, especially just because uh, you know, the way he plays too, when you have that, that dual threat quarterback, I mean, on offense, that's kind of like, that supplements the running back, that supplements an offensive line, that supplements the receivers because he's able to make plays, you know, when other positions break down or if you're make up for other positions, not being as good, it's, it's not everything, but quarterback is a gigantic uh, percentage right now. And it's only getting more important to me. I mean, I think we're going to see less and less of, you know, you know, like you look at Miami back in uh, when they had those, Crazy teams. I mean, they had Ken Dorsey was kind of like they were still able to dominate with quarterback being their weak link, uh, pretty much. But, you know, you know I think those days are mostly over. And you're gonna have to have a playmaker quarterback to separate yourself uh to compete at a high level.
1: It it really, it really flows into my next question. I know Ian has a question, but I wanted to just piggyback on what you said right there. That, you know, th- there's an irony here, Jack, and I'm sure that you're aware of it that after USC experimented with the air raid under Clay Helton and USC fans did not like the air raid mostly though, because it felt like a gimmick that if you're at USC, you don't need to resort to a, like a tricky or a clever offense. But the, the irony is that with Caleb Williams now in town, USC is not going to have the traditional offense that has been for a long, very long period of time, you know, a real selling point and a point of pride among the USC fan base, like USC fans have prided themselves on having the most physical offense, the most physical offensive line. And you do student body, right. And you give the ball to your stud tailback. I mean, of course you had Matt liner and Carson Palmer throwing the ball, but you still had them doing that within a very traditional offense. Uh, you had Herschel Dennis. And then of course, taking it to the next level, you had Reggie Bush and Lendale white, but now this is this is an, an era changing moment for USC that you're not going to have the traditional pro style straight drop back passer. I, you know, I did some research over the past week, and you know Rodney Pete he was a he was a mobile quarterback. You know, he could move outside the pocket. Sam Darnold as well. Like the past USC quarterbacks who could be regarded as mobile and athletic guys who were not chained to the pocket. You know, Vince Evans from the 1976 Rose Bowl team under John Robinson, which finished number two in the country. I looked up their rushing stats. None of them rushed for more than 260 yards in a season. Caleb Williams, he rushed for 442, and he played just two-thirds of his season with Oklahoma. So if he had, if he had been the starter the whole way instead of Spencer Rattler, you know, he could have rushed for 700, 800 yards. The USC, I can safely say, USC has never, ever had a quarterback as athletic uh, and as willing to run as Caleb Williams. He, he instantly becomes USC's most athletic quarterback of all time. And and so people outside USC's orbit might be very surprised to hear that. But when you think about what made USC's offenses click, whether it was under John McKay and, the, and John Robinson in the 70s, or with Rodney Pete in the late 1980s, um, you know, the Rose Bowl team in 1995, and then, of course, the Pete Carroll era, and then followed by Matt Barkley uh, under Lane Kiffin. You know, they, they've all been drop-back passers. They've all been fairly conventional, traditional quarterbacks, some more mobile than others, but none of them, none of them like Caleb Williams. So how, how, just how much of an era-changing moment do you think this is not just for USC, but in terms of you know how the game is played and approached, and also recruited in the Pac-12 conference.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's a, the times are a changing uh, for everyone, and I think I mean that old model because I was part of the camp too. I'm like, when USC adopted the air raid of like you're the one program on the West Coast that can recruit you know the best offensive linemen and running backs out west every year. Why are you running you know the scheme that Washington State runs because they have to you know, kind of fool people because they're never going to personnel. But I, I think this move done the right way. I think Clay Helton and company just did the air in the wrong way and too much air raid. I think this is going to be a great move for them. And I mean, it is what it is. I mean, you look at Alabama, uh, you know, who, at, you know, for much of their history uh, was the most, uh, you know, get, run for yardage in a cloud of dust as anyone else in the country. And they adjusted and they run more of a, an offense like this with quarterbacks like this, Uh, you know, you look at Ohio state, same thing Uh, that old model just doesn't work that well anymore. And and I, I've, I watch teams, you know, that still kind of stick to that a little bit. Like you watch at Wisconsin or I think Notre Dame's a little bit more open, but they just, they've never seemed to execute a more advanced offense and they're really easy to defend and it's just the nature of the game now. So I think you have to change. I think this is the right move for them. And this is the perfect, Kind of quarterback to do it. Uh, I mean, especially because not only with the air aid, I, I mean, I just think it's really hard to succeed in modern college football with a non-mobile quarterback too. It, it it's not that easy. Uh, if you, you can't have a guy who can improvise, or uh, you know, keep people from you know getting too much pressure on you without making them pay, and then the other part of it too is, I don't think with the demographic change and national recruiting, I don't know if USC can recruit the way. You know, they used to and dominate the lines. I mean, you look at the, the databases for, you know, who the top offensive line recruits are uh, in the country. There's not very many out West uh, and you're competing with, you know, keeping every other program, every other blue blood away from those guys now too. Same with running backs. I mean, it's not going to be like the old days where, you know, USC can go pick their you know, favorite three to five offensive linemen out West every year in a running back. Uh, and just develop enough till you have a bunch of great guys in line that those days are over you're going to have to probably lean on your quarterback more and lean on your scheme uh, especially given now and especially until USC can probably possibly start recruiting more nationally at a position like that then you might be able to be more elite on the offensive line
0: Jack I'm listening to you talk, and and I kind of have like a two-parter for you is what can we learn from Kyler Murray and his uh, situation with Lincoln Riley? And second, does that make the West Cop, the, the West coast offense basically dead and done for?
2: Yeah. I mean, I assume uh, uh, it's always interesting when you get these coaches who switch programs, uh, are they going to go, how, how exact are they going to be uh, with what they were before? And I mean, I think it's so crazy with college people now, I mean, you look at Lincoln Riley and he is literally bringing the quarterback he basically had from his past school. So that's going to stay the same. And you go back to, you know, Kyler and you see someone who, I I mean, it it really seems like they're going to try to follow a similar thing. I I know Caleb Williams to me uh, is is almost like a a deluxe car wash version of uh, Kyler, which is kind of crazy to think and say, and I think they'll, they'll probably model that. I mean, I think USC doesn't have the, base talent experience and, you know, uh, experience in their scheme to it. You're going to see that he had at Oklahoma when he was making those runs. So it might be a bit more clunky than say like, uh, you know, when it, Oklahoma had it set up to where they're going to have a Heisman candidate every year at quarterback. So, um, that, that's going to be interesting. And yeah, I, I think you should see something similar, but obviously it's going to be adjusted a little bit. And also just because of the situation that's changing, and then with the West Coast offense, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, I, I think we're going to see, you know, offenses that just things are going to die and they're just going to continue to die and they're going to continue to be rebuilt with new things and continue to to grow. And I mean, I think you even see, you know, I, I would people, people on uh, social media and on the internet would, you know, kind of base me when, you know, we were deep into the Chip Kelly, uh, era. And I was like, mm, this isn't going to stay forever. I mean, that's just not the nature of college football uh, with the hurry up and the read option of like, now you're like, Oh, this is, we're seeing something different. So I think we're, we're really finally starting to see schemes like that get buried and not come
1: back. Uh, Jack can, uh, you know, Ian asked a great set of questions and I want to follow up on them. Uh, you know, it seems as though, given where USC is in terms of its roster turnover and its roster construction, that the way for the Trojans to win games consistently in 2022 is going to be scoring 40 points because, you know, the defense is not ready uh, to be, you know, a high level defense. Uh, USC is going to have to find ways to win games, 42, 35, 45, 38. And so with, with Caleb Williams, you know, the question becomes, uh, you know, is, is he going to be able to overcome the limitations of the offensive line to the extent that USC can regularly be a 40 points per game offense and, you know, overcome the days when the defense is giving up 35, 38 points. And, and, and you know, within that construct, what do you think it's going to take for Caleb Williams and Lincoln Riley Uh, you know, to find the workarounds with their offensive line in 2022, you know, before they recruit at a higher level uh, in future seasons. What do you think the workaround needs to be to make sure that Caleb Williams is able to max out the USC offense this upcoming season?
2: Yeah, I definitely agree that yeah, they're going to have to outscore people, you know, uh quietly you know a few years ago those usc teams had i think a lot more talent experience proven than they they do now so riley and williams have a lot ahead of them to like you know prove and you know i don't think it's going to be as easy as some people might think from the periphery i would say maybe 75 percent of the time i think they can i'm pretty confident they can outscore people and especially in the Pac 12 but the Pac 12 is really interesting uh if it is what it is last year where it was like it's seemed to be dominated by these teams that were really limited. The best teams were limited at quarterback. They could run the ball. They had good running backs and their defense could, you know, keep the score low. So if that repeats this year, which I have no idea, because that's what's going to happen is having Caleb Williams is having, I think USC has talent at wide receiver. Um, you know, their talent is pretty comparable with the top of the pac 12. I think that's also because the pac 12 is, is really low on talent. I think they should be able to, in a, you know, a coach who's proven himself with that high of a level that should be pretty good to, you know, do enough to score and beat these PAC 12 teams and some of these limited offenses and quarterbacks on about a 75 to 80% level, you know, from there it's going to be, you know, that's kind of the catalyst. Are they going to be able to win a bunch of close games and, you know, get to 10 wins? Or are they going to lose a bunch of close win games and kind of like be around 70 to 80 because they have massive holes and, Um, I I just really think that the yeah, the offensive line, they're they're gonna need to really that's the place they're gonna really need to step up. I mean, you've seen a lot of NFL linemen come out of Oklahoma in recent years. And I don't think USC has those guys on the roster. Um, and they haven't really brought in guys in the portal yet that I think are gonna be, you know, huge impacts, where as a receiver, I think they're fine. Um, you know, I think they're gonna be good at running back for, you know, they've they've filled those holes for a year or two, but offensive line is so hard. And in the long run, that's going to be, to me, the, the big difference outside of the defense. Uh, because, I mean, at Oklahoma, they just they just scored 50, 50 on everybody. So it was like, well, we gave up 41 points, but we, we scored 56. So I kind of think that's just going to be what they do. So the big more concern is getting an offensive line that's talented, knows the system, has experience. And that's probably going to take a couple a year or two. And it's going to be a challenge, given going back to those demographics I feel like out West where you're just not producing those five-star, high four-star elite offensive line prospects the way, you know, the region used to. So that's, to me, getting the offensive line down is going to be huge.
1: Uh, Let's focus on recruiting now, Um, you know, a little bit more exclusively moving past Caleb Williams. Um, You know, Lincoln Riley has a number of assistants with Texas ties. Do you think that, if you were to pick one non-California state where USC really needs to make its bones uh, in recruiting, uh, would, would Texas obviously stand out as the number one state? Or, kind of flowing from your analysis, is it more just about you know, not dominating one particular state or region so much as being able to take from the various corners of the country? How, so how much centrality do you assign to the state of Texas in terms of offensive line recruiting and recruiting overall for USC?
2: Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I think what you, kinda, you kind of uh, touched on there is, yeah, Texas, I think if you had to make me pick a state outside of California, uh, that's going to be important. Yeah, I would definitely say Texas. But, yeah, I think you're going to have to mirror what, uh, you know, Ohio State and Georgia uh, are, are doing right now and, you know, other schools like that, like Clemson, where – they're going anywhere and everywhere. And we saw a little bit of this during the Pete Carroll years when things are really rolling, where, you know, USC would go to Florida or New Jersey or somewhere and, you know, uh, take the best player out of that state. Um, And I think that's going to be only more intense because it's just not sustainable to stay in your region, especially when it's going to be impossible to keep guys from not going to Notre Dame or Ohio state or Georgia from your region. Yeah. I think they just got (laughs) to, Everything's changed. And now I think, especially when you're a program with U S like USC's, you know, pedigree, you just got to look at the entire map of the U S and be like, where's this guy? Is he interested? Uh, who is he the best guy we can get? Let, let's get him. And, you know, try to lean on, you'll obviously be able to lean on the California, uh, and Texas to a, an extent too. Cause you know, Texas is also closer. It's easier to get a guy to, you know, commit to uprooting his life and coming to Uh, LA than it is, you know, a guy necessarily from like, you know, Georgia uh, or or New Jersey or somewhere like that. But yeah, I think right now it's just really like, it's open season. It's an open map and go find the best guy no matter where
0: he is. Jack, how important was keeping Dante Williams? (laughs) Uh, It's a good
2: question. I mean, it, it was quite a quite a you know an interesting thing watching him there i and I, I he seems like you get a lot of these guys in college football where it's like everything is an equation to me with the position coaches it's like how good a recruiter is is he measured against how good is it of a you know x's and o's guy development guy is he and how do those come together i mean i don't think it was like the biggest thing but i mean he's a guy who everyone talks about you know killing it in their recruiting game. And especially in the region. Uh, I, so I think it was important, but I don't think it would have killed them if they would have lost him. I mean, I think guys who are like, because I don't know how, <laughs> it's one of those things where when you're deeper entrenched into a program, you know, the fans and the, the analysts who are deeper into it, probably know better about his development and day-to-day coaching than I do. But I know on the recruiting side, I'm like, those guys who are just like all recruiters and can't develop as much. I sometimes think those guys are much more valuable at like an Oregon or a Washington or an ASU where you're like, we got to pull off some, uh, we got to pull off lightning in the bottles to get guys we should not get where USC. I'm kind of like, as long as things are fine, you can recruit well there. And it's almost going to be become more about like, can you actually get the guys to play and can you develop them? Because, you know, we're going to be able to recruit guys. As long as we're winning, uh, we're going to be able to recruit. So I don't know. I don't. It was kind of like a neutral to me with him.
1: So, Jack, as we wind down the show, a couple items left. One is, you know, let's, let's, we've talked a bit about USC recruiting. So what's your overview of Pac-12 recruiting? Uh, you know, we have Dan Lanning now at Oregon. We have Kalen DeBoer at, at Washington. Uh, and then, of course, we have a Pac-12 South dynamic in which, you know, Chip Kelly and her members have been retained, um, you know, to the surprise of many. Uh, so lots of different angles from which we can get at recruiting throughout the Pac-12 conference. What are your main storylines or takeaways from recruiting in the conference as a whole?
2: Yeah. Not great. Uh, <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, to me, the big part of it is, the number one story I think with pact of recruiting continues to not be any specific school other than maybe USC right now. But the fact that, you know, outside of the, the conference, the rate, uh, you know, the rating of the area, the region just continues to get worse. Uh, and I think the, the amount of elite prospects coming out of the area continues to lower at the same time, which is just deadly, but if we want to start going to programs. I mean, to me, uh, you know, Oregon's definitely a big one to follow because they're a big player in the recruiting game. And they definitely took a hit, you know, when they lost crystal Ball, especially so late in the process. And they rebounded well. I don't think they were rebounded, you know, exceptionally. And they bring in Tosh Lapoy, who, you know, is regarded as one of the greatest Pac-12 recruiters of all time. Uh, but he's going to be a defensive coordinator. And, you know, is he still at that mindset where he is the guy he used to be? Uh, I think Oregon will always be fine, and it's going to be interesting to see how they do on the field and how that affects that, and how well landing kind of does after this kind of first mulligan class. Because we got a lot of schools with all the coaching changes, they generally get like a mulligan, which almost USC kind of has, you know, because it's so hard and these coaches change so late in the, late in the the game with the early signing period, especially that it's like it's hard to even sign guys. So I don't think it's heading in the right direction. And as you said too, I mean you have schools in the south who are like usc and arizona state who should be your kind of like uh you know after usc be like your two and three in that that division and arizona state's a mess with their issues and uh ucla i think kind of committed to just being like average for uh a long time and we all know you know chip kelly's not recruiting like jim mora he's not out there fighting to get five-star guys uh that's not great (laughs) and In the North, Stanford weirdly had like the highest rated class of the country after like not recruiting for like four years, which is just really strange. And uh, how you're getting guys to sign on to play football there, not just academics, is kind of befuddling to me given how poor they've been in recent years and how poorly they developed talent uh, with that staff recently. It's not encouraging, Uh, I think, the overall recruiting especially outside of USC and Utah to me is kind of one I think you do have to mention, cause they have stepped up a little bit. You're seeing them start to sign more highly rated guys. And that'll be really interesting to see to me how that works for them. Cause Utah and Kyle Whittingham have done a, a great job of developing, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of non-marquee guys. So what's going to happen if they're plugging in, you know, three to four, five, you know, uh, four-star guys every year so that that's that's going to be a really interesting piece to me is how it is utah Jess and can they continue to build winning a Pac-12 championship i mean is especially in a state that is producing more and more talent in my opinion uh there may be the most interesting one to watch outside of usc and oregon to me uh for, for all those reasons
1: and you know what the one point you've been hitting on a lot in in, the, in this show Jack is player development that it's not just about recruiting the the four stars and the five stars but actually tr- transferring that potential into actual results and that really is the area where Lincoln Riley offers so much upside over Clay Helton that not only was Clay Helton not a particularly good recruiter but even what he the material he got at USC where he had all these natural advantages he didn't develop players. So with Riley, you get both the recruiting piece and the player develop, development piece. It's a great reason for USC fans uh, to be even more optimistic about 2022 and the future. All right. Final, final item on this show, Jack, is just the absolute train wreck in Tempe uh, at Arizona State University. There were rumblings john wilner of the san jose mercury news and the wilner hotline you know tweeted late thursday night hmm friday could be a very newsy day in the conference so there was some smoke there was some uh, stirrings that herm edwards might be sacked nope didn't happen and so we just have to wonder what is michael crow the president of arizona state university thinking by not firing ray anderson and herm edwards and just to be clear for everyone Ray, Ray Anderson is friends with Herm Edwards. So when he hired him, they were joined at the hip. Like if one person fails, both fail. Uh, that if Herm is fired, Ray Anderson also has to be fired. Uh, so what do you think? The it, it, First off, do you think Michael Crow is playing a long game here? Like he's just trying to wait out the NCAA and then maybe make a decision. You know, is he trying to just play this on the back end? or You know, because like that seems to be the, only reason why you wouldn't fire Herm and Ray now, you know, do you think that's Michael Crow's play or given that he stood by them this long? Why do you think Michael Crow is not yeah. in that
2: move? Yeah. I, I think, well, one thing to always factor into these, you know, these coaching changes or not changes is things have gotten so expensive with the coaching changes that you're like, these programs might not have enough money to even make this change you know uh because not only when you get rid of the guy there's uh, there there's always issues with that and you have to hire someone and then that's going to cost a ton of money and then you start to think of who are we going to hire because a lot of these schools that you know fire their coach they're like great we fired our coach and they they hire someone underwhelming i mean that's why the lincoln riley hire was so earth moving because it's like you're looking at like auburn or uh, are, are even, you know, the schools like Florida, Florida state, and you're like uh, Texas. And you're like, oh, that's who they hired. So you're like, Jesus, if we even have like a, a B minus coach, do we want to just ride this out while we can and save money? And because otherwise we're going to go out and we're going to hire at this point, uh, are we going to be hiring, you know, Jonathan Smith is not where they're going to hire, but I mean, someone like that, we are like, is that just a lateral move? And now we spend a bunch of money. Um, to me, yeah, the money part is huge. Uh, what's their financials like this and what they would have to do, uh, to make a move. And I, I would say, yeah, also trying to write it out. It seems like this whole process when everything broke immediately, I think everyone me included was like, okay, this is over Arizona state's going to have to hire someone new do damage control, uh, and move on. And I think now they're kind of also just uh, trying to play this, like, let it blow over game. Because, you know, the new cycle moves so fast. Things happen so fast that I think they kind of keep banking on people being like, oh, we forgot. Because you do forget. I forget sometimes about the ASC thing. And uh, they're like, well, each time it pops up, it gets less and less intense. And they're like, you know, if we ride it out for three more months, will anyone care? Uh, (laughs) That's kind of their hope. We'll save money. No one will care. And then, you know, we'll have more time to plan a better transition. I think that's kind of a big in the overall world that's the way things are kind of moving and i wouldn't be surprised if that's what asu is doing as well uh you know maybe they also yeah maybe they put their feelers out too and they're like well here's how much it's going to cost to do that and here's how much it's going to cost to hire the equivalent of like worse than steve Sarkeesian," and they're like uh let's just hope that this blows over
1: all right just to close it out just a yes or no this is a prediction Will Jaden Daniels transfer out of Arizona State before the season begins? Uh, No. All right. Jack Follman, you can follow him on Twitter, Jack, F-O-L-L-M-A-N, part of the great team at Sports Pack 12. Jack, we always love having you on the show. Thanks for coming back to the Trojan's Wire podcast. Love it. Thank you, guys. Welcome back to Trojans Wired. In this segment, we're focusing on basketball. It was a very eventful week for USC, not uh, the best results that the Trojans were hoping for, but certainly uh, progress in terms of overall performance. So performance and results didn't point in the same direction, but there's reason for this team to be encouraged. And the main reason for that encouragement is that We finally got a more well-rounded team performance, and more specifically, bench players, role players, getting into the act, getting into the effort. We haven't seen a lot of this during the season. We've seen occasional uh, performances by by maybe one guy uh, in one game, uh, one role player, supporting Boogie Ellis and Isaiah Mobley. But against Arizona, it was truly more of a team effort. Ethan Anderson with eight points, playing turnover-free basketball and contributing something significant at the offensive end of the floor. Isaiah White, who was such a factor in the NCAA tournament last year for USC. Now, remember, he came up with some big games, especially against Oregon. Uh, He delivered nine points, hitting three three three-pointers, and that's something USC really needs in addition to bench play. USC needs a three-point shooter. Isaiah White provided that but he got only eight minutes from Andy Enfield. And it's going to be interesting to see how Enfield manages Isaiah White's minutes uh, in the weeks ahead. But a very encouraging sign to see Isaiah White come out of the shadows. He's been struggling this season, uh, providing nine points off the bench. If USC gets eight turnover, eight points and like 20 turnover free minutes from Ethan Anderson, and it can get 10, 12 points from Isaiah White, off the bench with some degree of regularity, maybe Isaiah White's not always scoring ten or twelve. Maybe some nights he's scoring seven or eight, but he's hitting a couple timely three-point baskets. If Ethan Anderson and Isaiah White can be more regular contributors, and Reese, Sticks, and Waters, Kobe Johnson, Joshua Morgan can all play like twelve to fourteen solid minutes uh, per game. Maybe, maybe some of them can play fifteen to seventeen. Maybe even twenty. If USC can get that consistently, uh, you know that set of numbers, uh, those bench numbers in terms of minutes, points, timely three pointers, uh, low turnover basketball from the ball handlers who are asked to help out uh, Boogie Ellis. If USC can get more of what it got uh, against Arizona and carry that forward on a regular basis over the next several weeks, this is a good team. This is a second weekend. NCAA tournament team. This is a team that, while certainly not a Final Four favorite, uh, can certainly do damage on that first weekend. And, and, you know, if you were to say to any USC basketball fan, Ian Hess, right now, this team's going to get to the Sweet 16, they would all take it. And they would all view it as an extremely successful year coming on the heels of the Evan Mobley year. So to lose a generational talent such as Evan Mobley, and then get to the Sweet 16. I mean, if that scenario comes to pass, it's a great year. If USC wins one NCAA tournament game, loses in the round of 32, that's still pretty solid as a follow-up to the Elite Eight run. That would indicate a certain degree of staying power in college basketball. And, of course, you have a highly rated recruiting class coming in for the 2022-2023 season. So... USC didn't beat Arizona. Fell short, give up a late 10-0 run, you know, just one of 15 from the field in the past seven minutes, and yes, we know that this team just is fatally flawed in terms of lacking that knockdown shooter, uh, the kind of player that Taj Eady was. You know, we all remember Evan Mobley, and yes, he was a superstar, and yes, he's the biggest thing that USC's missing this year if you compare the Trojans to 2021, but Taj Eady should not be overlooked, hit the big game winner against UCLA in Poly Pavilion, was there to hit the big perimeter shot. That's exactly what USC was missing against Arizona. But nevertheless, precisely because of those losses from the 2021 roster carrying over to this season, uh, to see USC take Arizona to the limit in Tucson, it's a very encouraging performance. Yes, yeah, I, want, I didn't I get wanted, the win, but lots of reasons to be optimistic. I wanted to ask you about that because as I was watching it, I,
0: I liked the ball movement, right? Like they had 18 assists on 24 made baskets. That's a very nice sign. Um, but, but the shooting does make you wonder, make, make you question, right? Like I'm not sold yet because the shooting just isn't there. So if you can extend the floor on USC – you can wind up being extremely successful against them. So that was my first question. I have a follow-up for you, but that's on the other side of the ball. So but let's start there.
1: Yeah, well, you know, Boogie Ellis and Drew Peterson were a combined four of 25 from the field. Now with Boogie, you know, he got, he got his head knocked. He, his head got hit in an inadvertent collision. It was not a malicious play. It was just a loose ball scramble. Uh, got his head hit with D- uh, Dalen Terry of the of Arizona early in the game. So the idea that he was was not going to be on his game uh, ever since that early incident, you know, that made sense. So like this is not a certainly not a, a game to be critical of uh, Boogie Ellis, like you know, because you know you get you suffer an early game whack to the head. Yeah, you just might not be right. So Drew Peterson going one for thirteen. That's really the performance that held. USC back and with Peterson you know a couple things one he, he's a good clutch free throw shooter he's one of USC's better late game free throw shooters he helped put the Cal game to bed uh, he hit some big free throws late in the in the win over Arizona State as well so he needs to find a way to get to the foul line and USC generally needs to I mean it's not a great free throw shooting team but When you're going one for 15 in the final seven minutes, you need some guys who will get to the foul line. And let's be honest, USC struggles at the line, but if you're hitting one free throw, that's better than an empty trip, right? And in a a really close game, better to split a pair of foul shots than get nothing at all and toss up another missed three-pointer. USC was seven of 30 from the three-point line. And this is a team with size. It's a team with length. This is a team which should be working out and wearing out uh, the mid range and the paint in terms of where its shots come from. I mean, Chavez Goodwin, he's the master of the eight nine foot uh, jump hook shot, like that should be his bread and butter. Drew Peterson uh, should be looking for the twelve to fourteen foot jumper, whether it's near the elbow or whether it's on the on the wing or the or the near the baseline. Uh, so the shot distribution. I know that Arizona has some big bodies, so it's hard to get all the way to the rim against the Wildcats defense. But USC needs to be taking a lot more 12 footers and a lot fewer 24 footers. uh, And as well and also the Trojans need to find ways to get to the free throw line in crunch time, even if again, even if you're getting just one point uh, and and not two, that still is better than zero. Uh, That's certainly something for USC to focus on.
0: How big of a concern for you is the, the scoring difficulties at times, that they're not able to have these like outscoring games? You look at the top teams in the nation, Gonzaga, Purdue, even Arizona as well, and Alabama. Like They, they are, they are high-volume, high-scoring teams, and USC hasn't seemed at times to be like that this year.
1: Oh, it's definitely the foremost concern. And let's let's step back, though, and note how you know, USC did not play three games this week. USC had to play three games in two different weeks in January. Uh, the second week of January, when it had to play Stanford before then coming home to play Oregon State and Oregon. And then in the final week of January, played Arizona State on the 24th, Stanford on the 27th, Cal on the 29th. And USC's defense was not very good in those two, three-game weeks. But when USC has had a normal schedule, you know, just the Thursday game followed by Saturday, no early week game due to a COVID makeup, this team's defense has been excellent. You know, that two-game week in the middle of January against Colorado and Utah played great defense both games and, and swept that mountain road trip, which was really a problem for USC the previous few years. And then this week was a two game week, and you saw again USC playing great defense against both Arizona State and Arizona. Defense certainly played well enough. So, Ian, I'm just I mentioned the defense because, like, when USC is rested, the defense has always been there. The defense was bad in sequences when USC had a lot of games stacking up together, couldn't really rest that much, and couldn't really practice that much. But under normal scheduling circumstances, and we're back into a normal schedule here, um, you're going to get the great defense. So that leaves the offense as the obvious flaw. And, you know, I don't think it's going to be corrected uh, before the end of the season. Like guys who weren't making shots now, they aren't going to suddenly make shots in March, or at least that's not very likely. Maybe you'll see Isaiah Mobley you know, uh, be a little bit more aggressive in March as he was last March. You know, you had the three-point barrage against Kansas. Like, that was really unexpected. But you certainly can't count on USC's perimeter shooting to suddenly become really good in March. So that's definitely the limitation on this team. And I think the main hope for myself, and I think a lot of other USC fans listening to this, this podcast would would say the same thing. I just hope that Andy Enfield in the transfer portal this coming off season finds a knockdown shooter. You know, he uh, he found Boogie Ellis, you know, who is great in terms of dribble penetration, in terms of creating shots off the dribble. Um, you know that, that's what Boogie Ellis does—that he puts pressure on a defense uh, in that form. Uh, but Enfield has not found in the portal uh, the past few years. Uh, well, well, he didn't find it this year. He found Tajidi. But not this year. This year, he he did not find that diamond in the rough uh, sniper uh, who can regularly hit three pointers. I mean, you give USC that one piece, the knockdown three point shooter, this becomes a final four level team. But it's precisely because of the lack of that, uh, that you can't really assign a final four ceiling to this USC team right now.
0: Well, I wanted to ask the, on the other side of the ball, because you had mentioned the defense, and and I was impressed by it, but you had mentioned sequences and, and the run that happened. And, and the run happened primarily, be, I don't know if it was a soft whistle, if it was an unfair whistle, but there were just like a lot of ticky-tack fouls that they were giving up. And it, does, is there any cause for concern that USC's defense They are so aggressive in in how they get after that Gata mentality. I I won't use the word, but um, is there any concern that you have in in how uh, aggressively extended they possibly get?
1: Uh, You know, it's certainly been a concern with Chavez Goodwin for much of the season and certainly for much of January. So it's kind of ironic, Ian, that that there were those whistles late, but Goodwin – for the first time in what feels like several games was not in foul trouble. He's been, he's been limited by that a lot, uh, but not this past week. So yeah, I mean, USC relies on being extremely tough, extremely physical uh, on defense. And, you know, if this is, this is a natural organic and pretty persistent thing for lots of programs that when you get into March and you get an unfamiliar, An unfamiliar uh, officiating crew, you have to immediately adjust to the whistle, that that if the whistle is tight, you you need to adjust to how that's going. Uh, You need to recognize what they're calling, you know, the touch foul, the specific kind of play, like maybe a a hand check uh, or, you know, bodying someone in the low post, you know, maybe rooting them out on a rebound, whatever it might be, you have to be sensitive to that. And the thing with USC is this is a veteran team. You know, the, most of the guys here are, are you know, were through the uh, went through the elite eight run. Drew Peterson, Ethan Anderson, Isaiah Mobley, Chavez Goodwin. So these guys were around f- for that run a year ago. There's no, uh, you know, freshman star who's who's new to the party. This is by and large a veteran crew. Uh, so the players just they should be savvy enough to realize what's going on. You can note the bad calls. Of course, you know, you're not likely to get the favorable calls when you go into McHale Center uh, in Tucson as the visiting team. But veteran team, you need to know how the the game is being called.
0: So you have a you have a you have a big game this coming weekend at uh, or uh, at home against UCLA. Is that is that like a litmus test game?
1: Well, I think uh, Arizona was already a litmus test. And Pete, I think after seeing UCLA stumble against Arizona State, people would say that Arizona is now even more clearly the best team in the Pac-12 over UCLA, something that, you know, that's a real change from a week ago since UCLA beat Arizona by 16 points. So the the baton definitely switched hands uh, in terms of uh, Arizona taking the mantle from UCLA as the best in the Pac-12. But that having been said, I think what this test is for USC is, can you close down a good team? Because USC still is lacking a single high-end win on the resume. So this is the home game against UCLA. USC goes to Poly Pavilion in early March, but this being the home game, it's really important just to win. And I, the style points aren't going to matter much. It's just, can you find a way uh, to, get a, to get a high-quality win? If USC beats UCLA... Trojans are, if not a lock, extremely close to it. But if they lose to UCLA and they lose a game they're not expected to lose, you know, if they lose to somebody like Washington or Oregon State, you know, then the NCAA tournament math does begin to become uh, a little bit complicated for USC. So that's our basketball segment and that's our show for this week. For my producer, Ian Hess, thanks for listening to Trojans Wired, available on Google, Spotify. Apple, all the places where you like to get your podcasts. We'll see you next week here on Trojans Wire.